Each week, we examine the stadium beat from every angle. With athletes like Fred Lynn. The Green Monster, they call it that for a reason. About 12 foot of it from the ground to about 12 foot up was concrete. And if you hit that, I mean, it would just tear your skin off. Joe Theismann. What a great idea this is to be able to talk about the hallowed structures that exist today. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. One of the rarest events in sports is the final game or event in a stadium's life. It was that way in Brooklyn when the Dodgers vacated Ebbets Field for Los Angeles. 6,700 people watched and listened as the organist played California, Here I Come. 11,000 saw the Giants pull out of the polo grounds for San Francisco. Today, it's more of an event. We'll talk about stadium swan songs now and then with Neil DeMoss of the Field of Schemes. Later, we take a nostalgic ride in from the bullpen in a bullpen car. Writer Paul Lucas is our chauffeur and historian. And Stadiums USA's Mark Medoran tells us why an airline wants to ground a stadium proposal in Las Vegas. But first, the stadium's beat. Welcome back, Jeff Schmidt. Well, hopes for a new stadium in San Diego for the Chargers hinge on a public vote in November. What remains up in the air is whether or not a simple majority will be needed to pass the measure or a two-thirds supermajority. The question of majority or supermajority is being debated now by the California Supreme Court. Many question whether the project has enough support to receive two-thirds of the vote. Taxpayers will be deciding if they want to increase hotel taxes to fund a new stadium. Thunderstorms pelted the Twin Cities this week, causing some damage at U.S. Bank Stadium, the new home of the Minnesota Vikings. Exterior zinc panels were ripped loose, though none fell off the building. The damage will not delay the opening of the venue. A public open house is scheduled for later this month. Weather will not be an issue when the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament begins next month in New York. The three-year, $150 million project on Arthur Ashe Stadium is nearly complete. Tennis COO Daniel Zausner told WCBS. So we put up over 6,000 tons of steel over the last two and a half years, and the retractable roof portion of the roof is finished at this point. We're just putting the finishing touches on it over the next 45 days, and we'll be ready for the fans to arrive come the end of August. For the last five years, the championship matches were pushed to Monday due to Sunday washouts. The U.S. Open begins on August 29th. Still no takers for naming rights at the home of the Denver Broncos. The stadium name remains Sports Authority Field as the sports retail company's contract runs through the end of July. Ray Baker of the Metro Stadium Board told KDVR, Sports Authority's bankruptcy filing has put the whole process on hold. We have not been contacted as it relates to naming rights opportunities. My guess is that they know what's going on with the courts and they're waiting to see how that all plays itself out. Despite the naming rights limbo, just ask a Broncos fan, they will tell you the venue will forever be known as Mile High Stadium. In Miami, concerns remain over whether renovations will be complete at New Miami Stadium before the start of the upcoming football season. The Dolphins have already moved an exhibition game to Orlando. Local sports personality Hank Goldberg told CBS Sports, 
The Miami Hurricanes are worried about the economic impact of an unfinished stadium. The University of Miami is very concerned because their home opener against Florida A&M will be played at FAU, and their Florida State game is scheduled for October 8th. There are some who say that the stadium may not be ready until November. Well, that's a big payday for them. And they're already looking into the prospect of having to move that game to Orlando. Dolphins CEO Tom Garfinkel insists the project is on schedule. And he says, barring unforeseen circumstances, the stadium will be ready for both the Dolphins and Hurricanes. And quite a sight at Dodger Stadium during pregame 4th of July ceremonies. The Dodgers had a trained eagle prepared to fly around the ballpark. The only problem was the Eagle finished its routine by flying completely out of the stadium and did not return to its handler. No word on the status of the Eagle, who certainly exemplified freedom with the exit out of Dodger Stadium. Bill, that is the very latest. Thanks, Jeff. Last fall, the St. Louis Rams bid adieu to the Edward Jones Dome. This began a series of similar occurrences, which will be continuing at the end of this season. Of course, the Rams moved to Los Angeles. The Edward Jones Dome sits empty. At the end of this baseball season, this situation will be replicated again. The Atlanta Braves will have their final game at Turner Field as they head to Cobb County. This is a strange cultural phenomenon, and it has changed through the years when this happened. We wanted to visit with Neil DeMoss of the Field of Schemes to talk about this. It's a very interesting story, and Neil, I get the impression this has changed quite a bit from the old days. Let's take a look at the old days and how it used to be when literally very few people even showed up for this stuff. Uh, Why don't we start with Ebbets Field? was probably a good place to start. That's a good example, isn't it? Exactly what I was going to start with. Because, you know, I mean, you you hear all the, you know, old Brooklyn Dodger fans talking about how terrible it was when the team left town. You think, man, you know, the last day it must have been, the stadium must have been packed and everyone must have turned out to, like, see the team for the last time. It's horrible, sad occasion. There was like 7,000 people in the stands, you know. Um, It just wasn't considered, you know, the event that it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people were upset about the about the team leaving town and it was just really just seen as another ball game. Um, and you know, really same thing with other teams leaving towns, other teams tearing down stadiums, you know, there were plenty of uh sports stadiums that were were torn down in the 60s and 70s and none of the last days were really that memorable except maybe the Washington Senators and that's only because the fans decided to start taking apart the stadium before the last game was over. <laughs> they had to forfeit the game. There's actually a radio broadcast of that out there somewhere, um, which I've heard, um, and it's hilarious just hearing the announcer saying, oh, no, some people are running onto the field, and they're walking off with third base, you know. You know, the interesting thing about that Ebbets Field thing from a story that you did long ago, you know the fans have given up when nobody reacts when the organist plays California, here I come. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, but what I think what's happened more recently is that's changed things. It's the same thing that's changed things in sports everywhere, which is that the, the teams have just learned much better how to market the crap out of absolutely everything, right? No so if it's the, you know, if it's opening day, you 
you make sure to sell it as opening day. If it's the day after opening day, you sell it as second opening day, <laughs> right? And if oh, it's yes. the last day at an old stadium, even if it's a stadium that you declared to be decrepit and horrible and, you know, nobody would ever want to go there, right? Like Tiger Stadium, which the Tigers owners were just constantly demeaning to try and get a new one, or, mm-hmm. or old Yankee Stadium, which the Yankee owners, you know, as soon as you've got the money to build a new one, then suddenly it's not, man, that place is a dump. It's, well, we have to celebrate and honor our history, <laughs> and we can only do this by, you know, selling high-priced tickets for the last game or the last series or the last couple of months to try to, you know, get as much profit as you can out of it. Um, and that's when they start, you know, bringing back all the old players and have them go out and, and talk about how sad it is that this place has to go when, of course, the people who are deciding that it has to go are the same people yep. who are selling the tickets to see it. <laughs> I don't know how the like Texas Rangers fans are going to feel, or, or Braves fans this year, if there are any, mm-hmm. um, you know, being told, oh, come on out and say goodbye to Turner Field, that <laughs> venerable old ballpark that's been there for 20 yeah. years. You had a very interesting situation many years ago in New York because both Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds yielded their teams in short order. Did you find anything common? That's probably the only time or very rarely have we seen a situation like that. Was there anything common in terms of uh, what you saw between those two events? Again, it was just the way things happened in, in those days, right? If you knew that the team was leaving... You sort of said your goodbyes internally before the last game, and it, there weren't that many people who wanted to go out and see what was considered a lame duck team. You know, the idea of, I could be there for the last game. And, you know, I have to say, not everything has changed there. I was actually at the last game in Montreal Expo's history, which, was, which took place in New York at Chase Stadium. Hmm. Um, and there were a handful of people who came down from Montreal with it. I remember seeing a guy in, like, an old vintage Gary Carter jersey holding his baby so that he could say he took his kid to an Expo's game because this was going to be his last chance. But, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like, a huge event because everyone had already, you know, was already so angry at the fact the Expo's were leaving. Um, and had been angry for years that the Expos had been torn down, you know, as a functioning franchise. It kind of fizzled out more than more than it was made into a big event. As always, we appreciate the visit. A lot of fun and have a good week. Absolutely. I'm off to go collect my $500 million. <laughs> Please do send me a check. We, we can use it over here. Neil Ramos of thefieldofschemes.com. Check it out. And when we return, we're going to invite in Mark Medor and we'll talk shop. Probably some money concerns we'll be talking about there. When we return... Time to talk shop once again, and in steps Mark Madoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website. And we remind you, Stadiums USA is the nation's preeminent source for stadium information. You can depend on it. So check it out at stadiumsusa.com. Well, Mark, a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to head up to Milwaukee and see where the new arena is being built. It looks like it's going to be a beauty. I love the location of this, and I guess there's some new information to put into the mix. Fill us in. The Bucks ownership group is aggressively moving toward the opening of the new building for the 2018-2019 basketball season. The new venue will be called the Wisconsin Entertainment and Sports Center, at least for now. 
those fans that are buying tickets for the final two seasons at the current location, the BMO Harris Bradley Center, are going to get priority opportunities for seating at the new arena and supposedly at a discount as well. Hmm. So the new arena is budgeted at $524 million. 184 million paid for by the bucks, 250 million through the public sector and increased taxes, and 100 million from former bucks owner Herb Cole, who found that amount sitting in the cushions of his sofa. <laughs> is it fair to say that the new name is really just a placeholder until the advertising is sold, is it not? That's absolutely true. I don't think we'll hear the name Wisconsin Entertainment and Sports Center very much longer. <laughs> Boy, I'll say. What to do about the Houston Astrodome? How long have we been talking about this one, Mark, through the years? And, of course, they batted this around in Houston for a long time there in Harris County. We've reported on this. Uh, they've had a number of plans. It's hard to get them off the ground, and it's hard to get the voting that they need to get it off the ground. But there's something new in the mix here. Fill us in on it. The owners of the historic Astrodome, which is the Harris County, Texas commissioners, have decided that the building needs to be repurposed. They propose that the Astrodome have a revitalization plan, which would turn the iconic structure from a storage building, which is what it's being used for now, mm -hmm. to an active, usable asset. The basics of the repurposing plan include raising the floor to ground level, and constructing underground parking underneath the floor, capable of holding about 1,400 pickup trucks. Uh, the parking could be used for events at the adjacent NRG Stadium, which is just across the street. Mm -hmm. Additionally, the Astrodome could accommodate conferences, trade shows, and festival. The cost of this plan is estimated to be about $105 million. County commissioners will be voting on this pretty soon. The cost of demolition of the building, by the way, $30 million. So it's only $75 million more than tearing it down. And supporters have said it'd be foolish to destroy an asset which is fully paid for. It's uh, historic and has great value. So I'd love to see the Astrodome repurposed and have it used for a purpose like this. Yeah, you mentioned the historic aspects of it. That building does have an historical uh, marker on it. It is so designated now, and uh, there'd be a lot of remorse if they ever tore that down. I think they have the right idea here. Here's one that fascinated me, Mark. I just can't believe what the University of Houston is doing. It appears they're going to get a sizable donation from the head of the board there and change the name of the Hoffheinz Pavilion. What's going on here? Well, the University of Houston's planning on rebuilding its basketball arena uh, thanks to a $20 million gift from the chairman of its board of regents, a guy named Tillman Fertitta, a Houston billionaire. He owns the Landry uh, chain of restaurants, which is people could look it up. There's They own half the restaurants in America, I guess. Hmm. The project has a price tag of about $60 million. The $20 million gift will include his name on the venue. Now, there's a couple problems here. The 8,400-seat Hofheinz Pavilion was scheduled for refurbishment a couple of years ago with funds that they were getting from the football stadium budget when they rebuilt the football stadium. But budget overruns at the football stadium ate up their basketball renovation money. So they need to go out and get some new money. The universities had some legal troubles with the Hofheinz family regarding the name on the basketball pavilion itself. And there was a settlement reached with the former Houston judge's family, 
Um, Hoffines donated a million and a half in 1969 to build the basketball arena. But it's pretty strange to have the chairman of the Board of Regents donate $20 million and get a building with his name on it. So he may have to leave the board or recuse himself or something like that. But kind of a strange story. Mark, you've had an opportunity to see the site on which an NFL stadium could possibly be built in Las Vegas. You went over, studied that thing, kicked the tires. We talked about it at the time. You did express a concern that uh, this may not work very well because it's right on a runway, and (laughs) that poses something of a problem. Turns out that Southwest Airlines seems to have the same issue that you have and they are not supporting this stadium location uh, where the Raiders may potentially play. Uh, What does the airline have to say about this stadium plan? Well, Southwest Airlines has expressed great concerns. Their number one concern is about congestion. Uh, They're concerned about getting to the airport, getting out of the airport, whether it interrupts traffic. There's going to be 65,000 seats there, and Tropicana Avenue isn't that large. That site that's um, picked out at this point as the number one site on Tropicana Avenue, I could kick a football from there onto the airport grounds. (laughs) It's that close. It's just basically across the street from the runway. And um, they have some concerns, but they cited them as this. Number one, decreased safety and security departure and arrival traffic. It puts the building just off the end of the runway, which be quite undesirable from a noise standpoint as well, which I thought about that too. If you're in the top row, you're just literally feet from the the, uh, tires of that airplane that are landing. It's that close. There are alternative sites available, and Southwest Criticism of the Tropicana Avenue location is probably going to push some buttons and make people look at the alternate sites. But um, it is a nice piece of land, and you wonder what's going to happen there. It's right behind the MGM Grand. Next time I head out there, I'll be glad to take another look. Yeah, 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 indeed. Kick those tires again, will you, Mark? I saw a picture that fascinated me about a plan for the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton. It's beautiful. Uh, They are really going to attempt to elevate the fan experience, and this new makeover is what they're talking about. You've had a chance to take a look at those pictures. What do you make of it? Well, the Football Hall of Fame is paying attention to all the other recent real estate developments around sports facilities. And they probably talked a little with Stan Kroenke and see how he's doing Kroenke world. <laughs> the Canton, Ohio-based hall will be adding 100,000 square feet of retail and restaurant space. Possibly a four-star hotel is also under discussion. The Hall of Fame Village, as they're calling it, will include multiple family-oriented restaurants. And like the teams, the the Cardinals and other people have built these facilities around their stadiums. They want to increase the fan experience. And I think it's a great way to have those facilities get usage around the year when just not when they're inducting people into the hall. It's beautiful. I suggest the fans check it out. They have hanging gardens. It really is beautiful. Mark, each week we take a look back at some of the significant happenings in stadium and ballpark history. So let's get at it here. What do you have for us this week? This week in 1938, the Phillies move out of Philadelphia's Baker Bowl and into Shy Park. For several years, the Phillies have been trying to escape their dilapidated home and move in a sense in American League's Philadelphia A's. 
The Phil's arrangement with the A's Connie Mack at Chai Park was simple. They would pay 10 cents a head rent for the fans they drew to the park. They would hire their own stadium staff on game days, and many attribute the move to Chai Park as a savior for the Phillies franchise from extinction. Hmm. And this week, 1941, the Yankees unveil a monument to Lou Gehrig in center field at Yankee Stadium. Of course, Yankee Stadium would introduce a number of monuments throughout the years honoring famous players in pinstripe history. And that's it from this date in stadium history. All right. Very good, Mark. Hope you're enjoying the summer and we'll check in with you again next week. Enjoy the summer at Fenway Park in Boston. Oh, yes, sir. Mark Medora and we talk shop. Don't run away now. We take a nostalgic ride in from the bullpen. That's right. A look back at the phenomenon of bullpen cars in baseball. We remember where this got started, Mark. Are they making a comeback? We're going to find I'll out. Buy one of those. Yeah. I love bullpen cars. <laughs> well, we'll have one for sale. And we'll come back and talk about it on Yahoo Sports Radio. The bullpen car is a part of my youth. I remember a time, certainly as far back as I can go back, legendary broadcasters like Hall of Famers Bob Elson and Milo Hamilton used to uh, describe the bullpen car coming in with a reliever. And Al Lopez, who managed the White Sox, used a lot of relievers. So we knew all about the bullpen car. But a guy who has taken this an extra step is Paul Lucas, a well-known journalist, storyteller, and media artist. You've seen his work in the New York Times, ESPN, the magazine, and the Wall Street Journal. He currently works as a columnist for ESPN.com, where he writes, it's UniWatch, your one-stop shop devoted to uniform design. And he's also written a wonderful article about the bullpen car. You know, Paul, this stirs a lot of memories for me. Going back to my childhood, I came from an automobile family. My dad was an automobile salesman. So this was a natural marriage. As a little boy, this was a natural marriage for me. You know, I, I grew up, uh, Bill, in the 70s myself, and of course, uh, the 70s and 80s were really the classic time for uh, those bullpen buggies that were kind of golf carts uh, with a, the, the baseball-shaped shell and then a big baseball cap over the top uh, that a lot of teams used. Uh, and so that's, that's pretty much what I grew up with as well. But of course, the history of the bullpen buggy or the bullpen car goes back a lot earlier than that. Uh, and you're there in Chicago, and of course it was the White Sox uh, that were the first team to come up with a bullpen car. It was in 1951 when uh, one of their relief pitchers named Marv Rotblatt, uh, and he, w- he was one of the, or the, he was not one of, but the first pitcher uh, to ride into a game at Comiskey Park uh, in their new bullpen car. Uh, and that, that's where it all started in 1951. And they eventually put advertising on that. Somebody figured out, hey, maybe we can make a buck with this thing, <laughs> Paul. Yeah, so- you know, there's been a lot of examples of that uh, <laughs> where the, the car either has been a vehicle for advertising or it's sort of been an ad uh, in and of itself. Uh, the, it, when uh, I was growing up, again, in the 70s, I, I grew up on Long Island, uh, and so uh, we had Mets games and Yankees games on the local uh, TV stations. And the Mets had a, a, like a standard buggy uh, that baseball-shaped uh, with a big cap uh, on top kind of buggy. Uh, but the Yankees, they would have um, a pinstriped Datsun, 
which uh, we now think of as Nissan. It's the same company, but uh, a Datsun car. Uh, and they would, it would be a sponsored uh, uh, bullpen ride, basically. They'd say, you know, now coming in from the bullpen, riding in the Datsun uh, is Sparky Lyle or whoever the, the pitcher might be. But of course, nowadays, we don't have a bullpen car anymore. The pitchers come in on their own. Uh, and and the, the, the whole idea of a bullpen vehicle uh, that these professional athletes <laughs> need, you know, that they can't uh, walk or jog a hundred yards or however far it is from uh, from the bullpen to the mound. Uh, I mean, thinking back, it was kind of fun, but at the same time, it was kind of ridiculous, you know. Yeah. Uh, that that they needed uh, some sort of transportation assistance to traverse this, you know, not very long distance. And there are some players who drew a rather hard line, shall we say, about this. They didn't want any part of it. And uh, certainly Dodgers pitcher Mike Marshall comes to mind on that. Tell us about that. Mike Marshall uh, was really a curious character in a lot of ways. And uh, you know, for, for fans who don't remember him, uh, he was really a super reliever in the 1970s. He was the first relief pitcher uh, ever to win the Cy Young Award. Uh, in uh, 1974, I believe he went 15 and 11 that year and appeared in over 100 games, 104 games, uh, which when you think about it, is just unbelievable. And uh, among other things, he refused to ride in the bullpen buggy because he would run onto the mound. Uh, he would you know, emerge from the bullpen and not walk in, not jog in, but sprint in. Uh, and there have been other relievers who've done that over the years, but Mike Marshall was the first one to do it. And at the time, that was a tremendous curiosity. You, you talk about the, the different kinds of, of bullpen uh, transportation. You know, the Yankees had their Datsun, and these other teams had their buggy, the baseball-shaped buggy. Um, at one point uh, in the early 80s, the Seattle Mariners had a, a, a nautically-themed uh, transportation uh, or car called the tugboat, uh, and it uh, it was basically uh, a car with uh, this sort of shell over it that looked like a boat. Uh, and of course, you know, they're the Seattle Mariners, so it's a, you know, it's a Mariner-themed a uh, bit of transportation. It wasn't an actual boat. Uh, and there have been a few teams that have done things like that where they've tried to have some kind of amusing thematic thing going on. There have been other teams. Uh, the uh, the Brewers had a, a bullpen motorcycle because Harley Davidson uh, is headquartered in Milwaukee. Uh, and so, you know, when you can have something like that. You know, it, it's interesting. I was talking with a, a guy who works for the Mets in the Mets front office, and they have uh, a between-innings promotion this year uh, where they, you know, how, how some teams have the racing presidents or the racing sausages and things like that. The Mets have these racing Ford cars because I guess Ford is a sponsor of this promotion, uh, and they have basically uh, these little car cutouts. Uh, and I said to this guy, you know, you could get like a bullpen buggy cutout, or you know, extend the promotion so that the you know the the reliever is coming in somehow with uh, with some kind of similar. Uh, cut out kind of thing. You could you could revive the bullpen buggy without having to get the actual car. You could just have sort of a, a cardboard cutout of it or something like that. And he liked that idea. He said he was going to look into it. And I said, why don't you do, you know, if you like that, why not do the actual buggy? And he said a big reason why uh, the bullpen buggy has disappeared is that groundskeeping is taken much more seriously now than it used to be and that groundskeepers do not want a car or a golf cart or anything else driving across their precious outfield. Paul, this is a great, great topic. We suggest everybody check it out at ESPN.com. These are memories of my youth, to say the least. It sure is fun visiting with you. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Paul Lucas, our guest, journalist, storyteller, and media artist. And Paul, do you have a Twitter address? I do, uh, at UniWatch. Uh, so that's at U-N-I-W-A-T-C-H, at UniWatch. And uh, that's uh, your, uh, as you mentioned, one-stop shopping for all your uniform uh, news. Paul Lucas, our guest, that's our program for this week. 